0: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from Bloomberg Radio. Republican Representative Mo Brooks says he was acting in his official capacity as a lawmaker when he gave an incendiary speech at a pro-Trump rally before the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. Today is the day American patriots start taking down names and kicking Brooks wanted the Justice Department to defend him against a lawsuit accusing him of helping to incite the attack, which would have effectively given him immunity. But the Justice Department refused. Joining me is constitutional law professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School. This involves the Westfall Act. Steve, tell us about it.
1: So the Westfall Act is part of the Federal Tort Claims Act which is this 1946 statute where the federal government for the first time broadly opened itself up to liability when federal officers acting within the scope of their employment commit torts, negligence, things like that. And the idea was that the federal government would stand in the shoes of its officers, at least in those cases where the officers were acting within the scope of their employment. The Westfall Act, which was enacted in 1988, basically expands that to include Cases where plaintiffs have still tried to sue the officer. So as opposed to where the plaintiff sues the United States itself, now the Westfall Act is a mechanism for officers to say, wait a second, you can't sue me. This is the kind of suit that has to proceed against the United States directly under the FCA.
0: Now, why did Mo Brooks argue that he should be covered under the Westfall Act?
1: So there are sort of two interesting hooks to the Mo Brooks argument. The first is his claim that as a member of Congress, he is an employee of the United States. We tend not to think of elected officials as employees. But second and more importantly, his claim was that he was acting in his official capacity as a member of the U.S. House when he made the remarks for which he's being sued and that therefore they fell within the scope of his official employment such that if there's a claim here, it should have to be against the United States. And the reason why that's a big deal – is because the Westfall Act does not allow claims for intentional tort against non-law enforcement officers. So if, in fact, the Westfall Act substitution were permissible here, not only would the United States be substituted as a defendant, but the lawsuit would have to be dismissed.
0: The Justice Department said it won't defend Brooks. Explain why they came to that decision.
1: In any Westfall Act case, sort of the first question is, is DOJ going to certify that the officer in question was, in fact, acting within self- employment? DOJ did not certify that. Instead, DOJ said that the exact distinction that the House rules draw between official business and campaign activity is exactly why Brooks was not acting within the scope of employment here. That he himself has said his appearance at the rally, his comments on January 6th, he has said those were all part of his sort of campaign side which was actually largely designed as an argument to avoid internal consequences within the House. The problem is that by making that argument, he has also, as DOJ explained, fatally undermined the claim that it was therefore within the scope of his employment. But then DOJ says, and in any event, insofar as the allegations in the lawsuit are true, insofar as Brooks was, in fact, inciting violence against Congress, it is impossible to imagine how that could be within the scope of his employment as a member of Congress to incite violence against him and his colleagues.
0: Now, the Justice Department said inciting an attack on Congress, quote, is not within the scope of employment of a representative or any federal employee. Is this a signal that if former President Trump asks to be covered under the Westfall Act, that the Justice Department will say no to him as well?
1: So maybe. I mean, I think a lot of folks have jumped to the you know, what does this mean for President Trump? And we've already seen DOJ controversially take the position that Trump was acting within the scope of his employment when he defamed Eugene Carroll. I think DOJ's position in the Brooks case doesn't necessarily commit it to taking the same position in Trump's case. I mean, there's an argument, June, that they made in the Carroll case. That the president is always on duty, that things the president says are actually always within the scope of his employment in a way that that's not true for members of Congress. But I do think there's at least the possibility that this line of reasoning that inciting an attack against Congress is not and cannot be part of one's official duties could show up again if and when this issue rears its head in some of the January sixth related lawsuits against Trump himself. I mean I think DOJ now has left itself the ability to argue, I think, in both directions on that one.
0: Do you think that the Justice Department Intervening over the years in these cases has made it harder for courts to hold government employees accountable for wrongdoing.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think DOJ has historically taken a very broad and capacious understanding of the term scope of employment within the Westphal Act. The case that always stands out to me about this, June, is a Guantanamo torture case where DOJ took the position that torture of a detainee was within the scope of DOD officials' employment. Torture, which can never be legal. It's hard for me to see how that could therefore otherwise be within the scope of employment. And there are institutional reasons, June, why, politics aside, DOJ's interest invariably tilts in favor of defending officers, of a certain broad understanding of what scope of employment means. That's part of why I wasn't surprised that DOJ did certify President Trump in the Gene Carroll case. But there is a stopping point. And I think that what Congressman Brooks is accused of doing on January 6th, if that were within the scope of employment, then it's hard to imagine what wouldn't be. Folks may not like where DOJ has drawn the line between these two cases. I actually think, at least based on DOJ's historical approach to this context, that distinction makes a lot of sense.
0: Has the Supreme Court or have circuit courts ruled on this?
1: Sure. I mean, there are tons of decisions about what scope of employment is, and it tends to be pretty broad. I mean, there's a D.C. Circuit case that then Circuit Judge Kavanaugh wrote where the court held that at least under D.C. law. So for officers who are operating within the District of Columbia, scope of employment is almost tantamount to just are you on the job? To heck with whether you had any legal authority for doing what you were doing. Were you wearing your uniform at the time you did it? So there's a ton of case law about the Westfall Act because this comes up a lot. Obviously, there's less case law involving members of Congress than the president, but at least members of Congress, there's more than none. There's an important D.C. Circuit case from the early 2000s about a member of Congress acting within the scope of his employment when he defamed – there was a tryst, and he defamed one of the alleged participants. And the claim was, how could that have anything to do with his job as a member of Congress? And the court said, well, he did it while speaking to a reporter on Capitol Hill as part of a press briefing. That's how broad the cases are. That's why I think DOJ's behavior in the Trump cases so far has not been that surprising.
0: What's your take on Trump's defense in the Capitol riot suit, absolute presidential immunity?
1: In Nixon versus Fitzgerald, the Supreme Court said, yes, presidents are entitled to absolute immunity for any conduct while they are president that falls within the outer perimeter of their official duty. And so I think it comes down to whether President Trump's January 6th speech and his other conduct on January 6th could plausibly said to be within the outer perimeter of his official duties. And I think there are large swaths of President Trump's conduct on January 6th that clearly are and will be deemed to be, but I'm not sure all of it will be. For example, the tweets he sent in the afternoon that did not, in fact, actually tell people, at least initially, to stand down and go home. I mean, I think it's going to be a close call. I think it's going to be sort of some of it's protested, but not all of it. But I think that's where the fight's going to be and not the Act.
0: Can Trump in the future ask the Justice Department to certify him under the Westfall Act?
1: Yeah, I mean, he can ask DOJ to certify. um, And there's a procedure in the Westfall Act where if DOJ declines to certify, he can ask the court to do it. And so, you know, that's also something that Congressman Brooks might now do. The Westfall Act, interestingly, does not impose a time limit on when such a request has to be made. So it's still possible that the Westfall Act issue is going to have to be litigated In the Trump case as well. I just think that the much stronger argument that Trump will have is the Nixon versus Fitzgerald argument, which is really going to require courts to sort of break apart different things that he said and did leading up to and on January 6th.
0: In deciding to represent Trump in the defamation case. I mean, the Justice Department really didn't have to do that because a judge had already rejected the Westfall Act for Trump. There hadn't he? it's on
1: appeal. Well, so it had not been fully. I mean, so it hasn't been fully litigated. So DOJ made the Westfall Act certification, and then the court rejected it, and so that's what's being appealed, right? The the district court refused to accept DOJ's certification um, in the in the Carroll case. That's what the second Circuit is not considering whether the district court was wrong to reject the case whether it should have been accepted.
0: Let's say Trump asks for certification under the Westfall Act in the Capitol riot cases. What kind of argument could the Justice Department make to distinguish the Capitol riot case from the defamation case where they agreed to defend him?
1: I I think the biggest difference is the context, June, where in the Carroll case, The defamation claim arises out of comments Trump made as part of a press gaggle, where he was answering questions in his capacity as president. Now, I think there are plenty of folks who still think that should not be enough, that just because he's answering questions doesn't free him from liability for things that have nothing to do with the discharge of his duties as president. But that's the argument in that case. And I think the argument here would be, you know, the president inciting violent protesters to disrupt the certification of his electoral defeat is not remotely within the scope of his official uh, duties to nearly the same extent as answering questions in a press gradually. You know, I think there are folks who are going to think that both cases come out the same way, whether for Trump or against him. I just think that there's plausible defense to seeing them as different in that respect.
0: The House also refused to defend Brooks. Is that their own kind of analysis that goes on? It's not a Westfall Act analysis.
1: No, that's – I mean that's sort of the – from the House – so the Westfall Act is is purely about DOJ's position, and indeed the Act is quite specific about the role of the attorney general and the role of the Justice Department. The House is – the House – that's more from the perspective of from the – for House rule purposes. Is this a case where Brooks should be represented by House lawyers as opposed to private lawyers? There's actually nothing formal legally – that turns on whether he's represented by House lawyers or not. Um, That's more just a question of who pays his legal bills.
0: The select committee wants to obtain all the communications at the White House and conversations with Trump that occurred surrounding January 6th. And the Justice Department formally declined to assert executive privilege over testimony related to January 6th. What does that do? Because I think that the head of the committee – Congressman Thompson said that it will make things easier for them. And I'm just wondering if it really will make things easier.
1: Well, I mean, so it'll make things easier in the sense that, you know, presumably there will be no one who has the standing to assert a privilege claim. The problem that I foresee is the, you know, the House still has to have some mechanism for compelling compliance with subpoenas issued by the select committee. And it seems like the only way to do that is to go to court. Um, and so, you know, once you have the select committee trying to enforce subpoenas against recalcitrant witnesses, yes, there will be no good privilege defense because DOJ is not a certain privilege, but it will still take some time, you know, and it will still require courts to actually hold that there is no privilege defense, a matter that, of course, could itself be appealed. So I guess I'm, I'm a little more circumspect about how quickly that's going to go and how effectively, The committee will be able to enforce subpoenas, at least against private actors. Of course, I think subpoenas to the executive branch, it sounds like, are going to be generally complied with, and that may be what Congressman Thompson means when talking about how much easier it's going to go.
0: So you think that if they subpoena, let's say, former Attorney General Bill Barr, that he'll comply?
1: No, actually, I'm not sure that if the former attorney general will comply. I think there will be at least some effort by private, by people who are now private parties to contest these subpoenas in court, even if they are ultimately unsuccessful. I think the reason why, from the perspective of Congressman Thompson, that may not be that big a deal is because if the Biden administration is going to comply, then it may not need that much assistance from those former officials. Then it might have everything it needs on government servers, right, in the possession of the current executive branch.
0: Right, because what did it take, about two years to get former White House counsel Don McGahn to testify after he was no longer the White House counsel?
1: Right. I mean, and so I think with private witnesses, it's not hard to imagine how that history repeats itself. The big difference is that those private witnesses won't be nearly as central to the inquiry in a context in which you have the Justice Department and a White House that are willing to cooperate.
0: Thanks, Steve. That's Professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School. Affirmative action was first introduced into this country 60 years ago, but it remains one of the most contentious issues constantly litigated and discussed, as in the Netflix series Dear White People. Hey,
2: look, you
1: guys still got affirmative action. That's all I'm saying.
2: I'm sorry, what exactly are you doing here?
1: All right, check this out. You ready? Obama, right? Leader of the free world. He gets into Harvard based on you. Too late. Affirmative action. You know who's not president right now? No. The guy who didn't get in.
0: The goal of the group Students for Fair Admissions is to eliminate race in college admissions decisions. SFFA is behind the cases challenging the consideration of race in admissions at Harvard, Yale, the University of North Carolina, and the University of Texas at Austin. But a Texas federal judge has just tossed the case against UT Austin, ruling that the issues had already been decided in the famous case of Fisher versus the University of Texas at Austin which the group was behind, and which reached the Supreme Court twice, and which reached the Supreme Court twice. Joining me is Audrey Anderson, head of the higher education practice at Bass, Barry & Sims. Tell us about this case.
2: In this case, June, it was a second case that had been brought against the University of Texas at Austin challenging their race-conscious admissions policies for undergraduate students. The University of Texas had been sued earlier in the 2008-2009 time frame about their race-conscious student admissions policies, and that case went all the way to the Supreme Court, not once but twice. This suit was a follow-on suit that was filed within the last couple of years, challenging those student admissions practices again.
0: Have the admissions practices changed at the University of Texas since the Fisher case? Well, that was one of the things
2: that the parties in this case disputed a little bit, but no, the University of Texas had not come out and said, oh, we're putting out a new student admissions program, we're doing something different, and that caused the plaintiffs to say, oh, well, we're going to challenge this new program. The real reason that the plaintiffs that the Students for Fair Admissions group challenged the University of Texas admissions policies again is likely that there was a change in the people who are now on the Supreme Court now as opposed to when they lost their earlier suit against the University of Texas.
0: That is almost
2: certainly what caused SFFA to bring this second
0: suit. Tell us about the Fisher case that went to the Supreme Court twice. What happened?
2: Yeah, so in in the Fisher case, it was brought by an individual plaintiff, Abigail Fisher, a white woman who was denied admission to the University of Texas, and she alleged that the University of Texas Admissions Program, which does consider race in a very limited way as part of a holistic review of student applications, that that consideration of race violated the Equal Protection Clause. And the Supreme Court looked at that case two times. The first time they said that the lower courts had used the wrong standards in saying that the admissions program was constitutional. So they said, you use the wrong standards, look at it again. The lower courts looked at it again and said, hey, we still think this is constitutional. The Supreme Court looked at it a second time. And in 2016, by a 5-4 vote, held that the University of Texas's race-conscious admissions program was constitutional.
0: And I was surprised to learn that Abigail Fisher is also an officer and board member of Students for Fair Admissions. Yes. What was going
2: on behind the scenes with all of this is a wealthy businessman, Edward Blum, who really was the moving force behind the Fisher case. He knew Abigail Fisher's father, and as he was thinking about ways that he could challenge race-conscious admissions programs and universities in America. He found out that Abigail had been denied admissions to the University of Texas, and he decided she would be a wonderful plaintiff, and Texas would be a wonderful school to sue. So he bankrolled the Fisher litigation. He chose the lawyers. He helped with the strategy. And then when they lost in Fisher, they started this organization, called Students for Fair Admissions. The original board members were Edward Blum, Abigail Fisher, and her father, Robert Fisher. That was the original board of the organization. And they then started looking for schools across the country that could be sued to further their goal of eventual Supreme Court holding that race may not be considered by universities in America for purposes of their undergraduate or any kind of admissions.
0: So let's talk about the court's findings first on the standing issue.
2: Yeah, so a standing is, is a concept that we have in the United States legal system that you cannot bring a lawsuit unless you have actually been injured by something that the defendant, the person you're suing, has done. And for the suit we're talking about here, it was brought by the organization, Students for Fair Admissions, um, that BLUM has created. So when you're looking at a membership organization, which SFFA says it is, they now have members, people who have joined the organization, who say that, yes, we are all in favor of getting rid of the consideration of race in college admissions, and they pay a $5 membership fee. When you have an organization like that, like the NAACP, the organization can sue if they can show that any one of their members has been injured by the actions of the defendant. So that's how SFFA was bringing the suit. We have members. They said two of their members were white men who had applied to Texas and been denied admission. The university said, hey, wait a minute. First of all, you're not really a membership organization. You say you have these members, but they're not real members. And they made a very technical argument based on um, the bylaws of the organization and the state law that the organization is organized under in Virginia, and the court denied that, as other courts have denied that argument. They said, no, we are going to look at this in a practical way. They put forward proof that they really are a membership organization. So we are going to allow them to bring this suit. I think from a practical perspective, many of these universities say, hey, this is really just one guy, Edward Blum, who's on this quest to get rid of race-conscious admissions. And he's kind of twisting this concept of a membership organization in order to work his will. And so that standing concept has been brought up in, I think, every one of these suits that SFFA has brought. And so far, it's been denied. Every court has said, no, we're going to treat SFFA as a real membership
0: organization.
2: So that was no surprise that they were allowed to go forward and say, you have standing to bring this lawsuit.
0: Why did the court dismiss the case on the grounds of race judicata?
2: Yeah, the other concept has a fancy or a a Latin word, race judicata. But it's a very practical concept that says, look, the court. Are not going to decide the same lawsuit two times we have too much to do we're not going to decide something a second time so what you have to prove to show race judicata is that the parties in front of you this second time are the same parties or are what we call in the law in privity with one another maybe they aren't the same parties that were in the first lawsuit But they nonetheless had some kind of control over the first lawsuit, enough to say that, look, you had an ability to have your rights heard in that first lawsuit. And were the claims in the first lawsuit actually the same as the claims in the second lawsuit? If we can find that it's the same parties or the parties were in privity in both suits and that the claims are the same in both suits, we're not going to hear the second suit. We've already done this. So that's what was really at issue in the university's motion for summary judgment. That's how you bring one of these motions before the court. And the court here found that the second suit should be dismissed based on the principles of race judicata. So the court found that SFFA was in privity with Abigail Fisher in their first lawsuit. And they found that based on some of the facts I was spinning out before, that Edward Blum is the president of SFFA. He's one of the board members. Abigail Fisher is one of the board members. Her father is a third board member. There are two other board members, but the court said that the three board members, Abigail, her father, and Edward Blum, really had effective control over SFFA and what it does, especially when it comes to litigation efforts. And they said, those are the three people who also controlled what happened in the Abigail Fisher case. So the parties were in privity with one another. And of course, the defendants are the same. The University of Texas at Austin was the defendant in the first case. is the defendant in the second case. So the court found, all right, we've got the same parties or they're in privity with one another. Now, the second question is, are we looking at the same claims? Well, the plaintiffs made that kind of easy for the court because the complaint in the second case looked very similar to the complaint in the first case in terms of what they were complaining about. SFFA said, well, we're not complaining about the same thing because some of the facts have changed in the intervening 10 years. They said that the University of Texas didn't use the same kind of language to describe its use of race. So whereas in 2008, when Abigail Fisher was suing, they just said that race was a consideration. Now, in 2018, 2019, they said it was a significant consideration. The court said that's just semantics. You haven't pointed to anything they're really doing differently. And then the plaintiffs also pointed out, well, the state of research has really changed. One of the things you have to prove if you're a university in order to show that you're program meets constitutional standards is you have to prove that you do not have race-neutral options available to you that will get you the same level of diversity. And SFFA said, look, there's all sorts of research that's been done in the 10 years between the two suits that show that there are additional race-neutral options that universities can use in order to get greater diversity. And the court said, well, that may or may not be true, but in your two complaints, Race-neutral option. You are saying that the University of Texas should use is exactly the same race-neutral options in 2018 that you said that they should have used in 2008. So we don't see that that's different either. So the court said same claims, parties are in privity, uh, race judicata. We're not
0: going to hear the second lawsuit. SFFA says it's going to appeal. But why appeal when they have three other cases and it would be going back to the Fifth Circuit, which had ruled against them in the last case? Yeah, I think that's kind of a head
2: scratcher to me, too, June. And part of that is people often say that and then they don't end up appealing. You know, one of the things that SFFA is trying to do is to get appellate decisions from different courts of appeals around the country that are in conflict with one another, because that's the best way to get the Supreme Court to be interested in your case. Remember, their ultimate goal is to get the Supreme Court to look at this question that was decided in Fisher and that was decided in the Michigan cases, Grutter and Gratz, to look at that question again and hold that actually the Constitution does not allow colleges and universities to take race into account when admitting students to their schools and programs. the best way for them to do that is to get different courts of appeals to say different things. So Texas is in the Fifth Circuit, and they don't have another case in the Fifth Circuit. So that would be a reason to try to keep that case alive. I wonder if it's more personal than that, that they're still upset with the University of Texas. It's where Ms. Fisher did not get admitted and maybe they still just have a bee in their bonnet about UT. I don't know. But as you said, they have three other cases and a lot of people are watching the Harvard case very closely. It's currently at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has shown some interest in the petition by asking the United States Solicitor General to file a brief in that case giving the government's views on whether or not the court should accept review of the case. And so that could get SFFA to its goal very quickly.
0: So the Biden administration dropped the Trump administration's lawsuit against Yale. In light of that, how do you think the SG will advise the justices? I would expect that the
2: Solicitor General in the Biden administration, and going out a little bit on a limb here, will say that the Supreme Court should not review the Harvard case. The First Circuit in Harvard followed existing law. There's no reason to review its decision. The Supreme Court does not typically reach out and review a case where the lower court has followed existing law, and there is no split in authority between the courts of appeals.
0: Thanks, Audrey. That's Audrey Anderson of Bassberry and Sims. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.